John, thank you so much for your time. I'm, Pleasure. I'm aware that you're an incredibly busy man and that you are no doubt shooting off to a, another commentary this evening or tomorrow and then we'll have three or four to come over the weekend as well. It, it never ends. Yeah. I, I mean, it, really, it, genuinely do, it genuinely does never end, but that's football, isn't it? Yeah, my, my girlfriend asked me a little while back, she said, after I came back from the Women's World Cup, she said, when does like the football end? And I was like, well, like the season's finished now. She's like, no, I don't mean the season. Like, what's like the end point when it all ends? And I was like, oh, no, no, and that never yeah. ends. It just carries on now. And she genuinely couldn't believe that it was so much all of the time. Mm. Um, that must be uh, particularly clear to you and your family, given that you yeah. do almost every weekend. Yeah. And also, as well, in terms of that year round thing, you know, I, I, unless I'm fooling myself, I do remember a time when the every other summer would be quiet, and you would have you would have a stretch of time off. You know, I'm talking like a month or more off in the summer, and that just doesn't seem to happen anymore. That's gone, hasn't it? Yeah, that doesn't seem to happen anymore. Um, it almost be... it almost feels like governing bodies are trying to fill that space yeah, aren't they yeah 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 which i think comes back to the whole discussion about whether there's too much football or not but i mean going going back back to uh you know this i'm sure a lot of people won't remember cfax but when when cfax when cfax was around i remember a time when cfax which had a football page they used to close down they switched off the football page in the summer. Can you explain CFAX very briefly? CFAX would be the sort of internet of its time. <laughs> so the internet before the internet, which you would which you would get on the television. And and funnily enough, I often say, really the sort of twisting it on its head, I often say that now really what we have with all of the technology that we have at our fingertips is the modern version of CFAX. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? I 100%. mean, it's just it's just CFAX with with massive big knobs on. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and, and a lot more flashing sparkly lights yeah. and a lot more things to grab your attention. Yeah. But it used to I, be the. I didn't expect we would start the interview talking <laughs> yeah, about suddenly, CFAX. Like suddenly that. getting to <laughs> CFAX page three hundred two <laughs> yeah. on the BBC. Yeah. Uh, like for those of you who don't know, I mean, CFAX used to be. It used to be your staple for yeah. getting the news, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that must have been quite important for you, being able to get up to speed with things. Yeah, yeah, it was. Whereas, but I mean, you'd sit there, you'd sit there, wouldn't you, and wait for the page to change. Oh my whether god! Whether it was for football scores <laughs> or, or whatever it was, yeah. And that would be that would be you know away from TV radio. That was your that was your fastest service that well, you had. Well, Jackie said to us, Jackie Oakley said to us that you used to have to like she would say she'd be waiting for your if your game wasn't the one tv game that weekend you were waiting sitting glued to the page waiting for the page to roll yeah. around so you could see whether your team had scored yeah like if you weren't a commentary game on the radio or weren't a tv game on i think it would probably would have been sky at the time yeah then there was no way of actually seeing your team playing yeah. unless you actually went to the game yeah. which is fascinating and i i mean that's actually a really good place to start because i assume when you first started out commentary actually sourcing news mm. and sourcing the information yeah. would have been a lot harder than it is now. Very much so, yeah. Um, really, compared to how it was when I, when I first started commentary, I mean, I would be pouring through the Rothmans Football Yearbook, which, <laughs> I, which I, you know, I still religiously buy it every year, but for most of the year now, it just sits on the shelf and I'll occasionally dip in there. But But, Back then, when I was when I was first preparing to do commentaries, I had a whole series of, of effectively textbooks sitting there, and that's where you got a lot of your information from. Whereas now, you know, it's just all there. It is very much at your fingertips now. So, were you gathering? Were you taking stats and then having to build them yeah. yourself, for yeah, example? Yeah. But you see, I still keep my own. What what's grown out of that is that then you had to keep you had to keep your own you had to keep your own record of whatever it happened to be. I mean, I'm thinking back to when I started covering local radio, so I'd be covering Middlesbrough, as I was at the time, um, and you would keep detailed statistics on Middlesbrough, and yet, and then when I moved into commentary on, on national radio, you, you know, I then started keeping records of all of the teams I could potentially do, and I still do that, and I feel that that's quite a, I feel that that is something that is unique to me, and and all of this information that I write down and keep in a sort of logbook style is is available. It's freely available on the internet. But I know, I know, I know. First of all, 
the, the format that I do, I know where everything is. So I don't have, I don't have to search for that. I can go there directly. Uh, and also, I do trust what I've written down. <laughs> yeah, I, you know that. I, I, and I've got it at my fingertips as well. I don't have. To, I don't have to take time. I'm not reliant on a Wi-Fi connection <laughs> to get that. I've got it there. And, um, and 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 a lot of what I do in terms of preparation is based on on my own basic records and notes. So when you say you you, you have your own style, is that a, a way that you lay out? A page, for example, or is yeah. it the, the the way that you've done it over the course of time that you can flick back to finding yeah. a specific yeah. thing? I mean, they are team records. They're they're, they're specific team records of uh, of team lineups, goals, substitutes, you name it. Um, and that that is what I you know, if I as I occasionally do, will end up going to a game and f perhaps forgetting them. Yeah, I really feel exposed if I haven't got them there with me. That's interesting. Mm. I mean, that's something that a lot of people have said that they. A lot of the time, they probably won't use their notes. Yeah, those but are but those are my records, blanket. as opposed to my as opposed to my actual notes. Right. Okay. Okay. And I mean, if I ever forgot those, I would be absolutely. I would be. I mean, unfortunately, that's never happened. If I if I turned up in a match without notes, I could do. The, you know, there's no question. I could sit down and do the match. I could sit down and do the match, but I would feel so uncomfortable about about not yeah. having the notes. And it is, as you say, the the actual notes that you, that I have for a match are done in a style that, um, you know, having tweaked the methods over the years, um, but it's down, you know, a very individual style of notes that I have, and this applies to any commentator, and it's funny, people are very protective very often of the notes that they do. Yeah, it's like the Bible to them, isn't it? It is, it's, there, sort and of it's, the, way, it's the way you do it, and, uh, um, I mean, Mike Ingham, who's great, colleague of mine who's retired now I, I, you know I was always fascinated by the way that Mike did his notes because it was always very freestyle you know I'd sort of have a little look over and I'd think well I don't make I'm not sure exactly and, it's, and Mike had this really scrawly handwriting as well whereas you know admittedly mine are very neat and uh, and and quite precisely written out and I look at Mike and I remember saying to Mike once and this is after I worked together a long time I said Mike do you do you mind if I um could I just have a look at Can I actually have a look at you? And he said, no, you don't need to look at those. <laughs> and I said, no, I'd, I'd, I'd like it. I'd, I'd just like, and he said, no, 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 you don't, don't, don't. And I never saw them. So I never could, actually saw them. Could you tell that it was not a case of you don't need to look at them, you're not looking at my notes sort of no, thing? No, I don't think so. Not knowing Mike, I think it'd be more a case of, you know, he genuinely just thought, yeah, that won't benefit you at all. And I, <laughs> okay. and I think you, um, you know that's what you feel comfortable with the way that the way that you, the the way that you do it. Everyone, it's, it's so it's such an individual thing. In that, to give you the detail as well as writing down, and I write it out. I, I religiously right. write it out. I don't I don't do it on the computer for a good reason. Um, in that, it's a little bit like the the whole school thing. Really, I think it's light revision. And I just like to write it down. I feel that just that connection of handwriting the whole thing out, actually, as well as having it down on paper, and this, is, this would be every potential player that I feel might be involved in any individual game, and also individual match notes on the two clubs, the two teams as well, managers, etc. You know, it might be that I'm doing Manchester City on a Saturday and then I'm doing it again on a Wednesday, but I still write it all out again because there are little bits that are updated but generally it's the same thing but I feel it's part of a process for me you know everyone's different for me it's just part of a process that gets me in the right mindset and makes me think about the players that I'm going to see and as I'm writing it out I might not be massively concentrating on what I'm writing down because I've written it a few days ago but I think it just makes you think a little bit about that player. What does that player, what does that player look like? What sort of form he's in? What, where is that player at the moment? You know, so it's it, it's that's it's like I say, it's part of the process. And then on a, on a match night, I will have all of that as well. But when the teams come out, I will then on my folded over piece of paper, I will write out the formations of of, of how they'll play, and that's the that's what I have in my hand. And this is what I'm saying about if I forgot that, as long as I've got that, that halved piece of paper with the formations on, you know, there's no question that I'd be able to, to 
carry off the commentary without those notes. But they are, as you said, they are the comfort blanket. Those are your revision notes that in, in, the, in these exams, you have got your notes with you. And if you need it, they're there. You, you mentioned Mike Ingham. Is, am I right in saying that you now have got the, the, the role that, he, yeah, that he, right. he was doing? Yeah. So at what point was this? And tell us about when you, I mean, so when did you start at the, at the BBC? Well, I started, um, once I'd gone through university, um, I then did a postgrad course in radio journalism, so that was that was news and sports. So I read that you studied geography. Correct. I did geography at university. Uh, came from a farming family, and my farm, you know, the I come from a a real dyed-in-the-wool farming background. And if you if you did one of those TV programs, you know, who do they think they are? They'd be the dullest ever, <laughs> because the previous generation of farmers. And the previous generation, and the previous generation, and the previous generation. <laughs> it, as far back as you want to go, they're all farmers. And you know, so I grew up as the youngest of the youngest son of four. So uh, you know, farms can only um, you know there is only so much work to go around. So it was always I think I was always sort of encouraged to to look elsewhere. But also, um, you know, that's a hard that is a hard life that it is and was and continues to be a very hard life. And so I always think, you know, whatever, whatever I do now, I think back to, you know, what my brothers and, and the rest of the family continue to do now is, you know, that is hard work. Early start, late finish, Just very everything physical. Everything about it, everything about it. That, that's, that's a hard job. This, this is not a hard job in, in comparison to that. So anyway, um, did my did my geography at university did the postgrad and then went went straight from there into um, commercial local commercial radio on Teesside, where I was doing news and sport. Gradually did more more sport. Uh, gradually started to do football commentary, uh, and then after a few years there, switched to the BBC, the BBC local radio station, which was Radio Cleveland, which is BBC Tees now. Did a year there, and that was that was that was very much with a move to the BBC in mind for me. And then after a year there, I then um, moved to, to network radio. Why do you think, I mean, the idea of moving to the BBC, why do you think that carried weight in your mind? Because I think of the influence that I had when I was growing up from BBC Sport, which is a very different time to now. This was pre-Sky when, when when I was when I was at school and really getting into to all sport, being a, being an absolute sports nut. And I mean, we we were so lucky then, kids at that time because it was all every big event, every big sporting event. I think I'm right in saying was freely available on the television. Didn't have to pay for it. All free to air. Test matches. Wrong all day, you know, unless it, unless it was interrupted by the three forty-five from Haydock. The the and you could you know the amount of sport that I watched on television as I was growing up was absolutely incredible. And I think I think you know this is progress. This is progress now, but it's a very different world in which we live um, in terms of the consumption of sport and as well as watching stacks of sport. I would listen to lots of of radio sport as well, which was also mainly on the BBC. So I think for people of my age who grew up with that um, connection to, to BBC sport, I think the carrot for me personally of being able to work for BBC sport was massive. So that was then sort of almost dangling in front of you. So yeah. when you make the move there, you must have been overjoyed. Oh yeah, um, couldn't believe it. And it, you know, even though you know, even though I am the age that I am now, and even though I've done it for such a long time now, for decades, uh, I mean, it it, it it was and does continue to be for me the the dream job because, you know, I would listen to, you know, commentators of times past, Peter Jones, Brian Butler, as you say, Mike Ingham, my predecessor. Um, the, that role, that specific role, which is titled BBC Football Correspondent, but this specific role, i.e. being the radio commentator on, on the biggest games that BBC Radio 
sport cover has only been held by Mike and before Mike it was Brian Butler before Brian Butler it was Brian Moore who was the who was the first um, to hold that job so there's only been the two Brian's Mike and me who've who've held this role and you know that means a lot to me just personally and as a part of BBC Radio Sports broadcasting history so to do that I still almost have to pinch myself to think that that I'm in that position and you know times have changed things have changed it's a very different world it's a very different broadcasting world but you know that that still means a lot to me and what was your first tournament what was your first kind of you get there and you think I can't believe I'm here I'm at this tournament well, now when I'm when I'm when I first moved to, to London, I moved to work in the BBC Radio Sports Department as a producer. So um, I was pigeonholed, really, as a, as a producer, even though I'd commentated and, and broadcast lots in local radio. But that was the role that I started. But you very quickly got opportunities to, to broadcast. And, and, and also, very handily and helpfully to me, one of the, my colleagues I'd worked with in commercial commercial radio at TFM in, uh, in Stockton on Teesside was Charlotte Nicholl, who was very much a pioneer of, of, of women in sports broadcasting. And Charlotte, having, having uh, done quite a lot of broadcasting, actually became a football producer in the department. So Charlotte, who I'd worked with in local radio, knew that I could commentate. So was, a, was an important and, and pivotal figure in me getting an opportunity to, to commentate in um, on, on on national radio as well, um, and so as I say, I very you know very quickly took that opportunity because in those in those times there was there was so much football on the radio and and Five Live would cover it all, and and in the main we'd have two football commentators at every match as well. So the opportunities were great there to to get an opportunity to, to do it, but also. You wouldn't just do it on a Friday night. You'd then do it on a Saturday. You'd do it the next Tuesday. You'd maybe do it on a Wednesday. You'd then do it on a Friday, and so it just kept going. So you so you had that experience, and um, and I, and that was invaluable to me. So I very quickly got a got a foot on the ladder to do that. But the first tournament that I did, um, I think I think Peter Drury had left. I think Peter had moved on to ITV. So this was sort of '97 time. There were a couple of people who left at the time. Rob Hawthorne also left and moved on to, to Sky. So then I slotted in as a member of the, of the touring football commentators group at, uh, at BBC Radio. And I remember, you know, I remember clearly sitting in the sports room when I just, I just moved on to the football team. And I remember Mike Ingham walking over to me and I was sitting editing at a machine. And Mike had said, you know, well done, congratulations, you know, welcome to the team. And this is like na late 97. And I remember Mike saying to me, of course you do realise, don't you, that this means that you'll be going to the World Cup. And I remember, and I hadn't even thought about it, and I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm going to the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and so that was 98, so France 98 was the wow. first tournament that I went to, and, um, and I've been at everyone since. Can you remember what your, your commentary games were at France 98? Yeah, uh, I remember doing games, I remember doing games in Montpellier, uh, in Nantes, um, I remember doing the game when Ronaldo, the older Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, scored his first goal at the World Cup. Was that where it got played over the top and yep. he sort of struck it back Ran across the keeper? That's what right. that was. Yeah. Um, I did a few games in Nantes there, worked with Graham Taylor there, who had not worked with. So before. Graham Taylor was your co com? Yeah, so Graham, Graham was with us at that tournament. Um, and uh, doing games at the Stade de France, the Parc de Prince. Um, a, you know, a fantastic, fantastic memory. I mean, to be at the World Cup. I remember doing, I remember doing the game in Lons where uh, Laurent Blanc scored. And I mean, it, it, that was, it was such an education that to do that there. And I remember sitting next to Alan Green and Alan Green was commentating on that match. And it was golden goal time, wasn't it, in 98. And Blanc scored that goal in extra time when they, they'd had a struggle, the French, in that match. Um, I'm trying to think of who it was they were playing. Was it Paraguay? Anyway, the, the, they won with a Laurent Blanc goal. And I remember sitting there next to Alan, who's describing it, and I remember him saying, Laurent Blanc has eased French pain and had scored this goal. And just watching him 
how he commented on that and how he um, encapsulated it all in that moment, which was you know, a huge moment in, in France's World Cup, which obviously they went on to win. That, that whole thing, I learned so much very quickly from, from that style of, of working alongside a fellow commentator, whether it was Alan, whether it was Mike, whether it was Simon Brotherton, whoever it happened to be. Um, did your style change from then? Do you feel like you, you, that your commentating style, I mean, you said that you watch other people, but do you feel that start to have an impact on the way that you commentate? Or have you tried to stay true to, to, to how you started out? Um, I would say that I've never consciously developed a style, right. really, but it, it, is, it is what it is. I do it in the way that I like to do it. I try to, you are influenced by the people you work with and the people that you like listening to, whether it's radio commentary, television commentary, whatever it is. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, and always have been a huge cricket fan. You know, that's, that's right up there. In fact, if you pressed me, I'd probably actually say cricket was my favorite sport. But, you know, I love, I absolutely love football as well. But in a broadcasting sense, I listen to, and still do, hours and hours and hours of test match special. And, and I think that has been a big influence on me, listening to the commentators that they've had over the years. And it's a completely different sport, and completely different type of broadcasting, which I have dabbled in briefly. And, um, but but I, I feel that, that I feel like I, I took a lot from listening to test match special over the years. And, and I think that was a big influence on the, on the style that, that I might have. Well, the interesting thing with Test Match Special is they've got hours to fill, right? Yeah. And so nothing seems yeah. rushed. Yeah. Everything seems very timely. And, and I, I, whenever I listen to Test Match Special, I feel like they're, they're, ve they're very clear in what they're saying. Everything is very clear and very pronounced. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something now that... Now, see, I thought that as well. I, I, that would have been exactly my view. Yet when I did have my little uh, dabble into to cricket, when I did a tour of Sri Lanka with England, um, 2002-ish, and, and I mean, that, was, that really was dream stuff for me. Right. To commentate on England playing test cricket on a tour somewhere like Sri Lanka. I mean, absolutely loved that. But like you, I thought, I'm going to have acres of airtime. Yeah. I'm going to have, and yet I found I, I, I just thought I'm not sure where. It, it's incredible how little time you actually have um, to to expand your thoughts and to say what you want to say. So that 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 again really surprised me. But it's the art of that's the art of doing it and making it sound like that. So do you think then? I mean, it, I, I assume it'd be the same with cricket as with football. Do you find that when you're commentating on a game or on a match that you are permanently in that in that zone? Like once you switch on into game mode, there's very little time where you actually will just sit and relax for a bit. You, mm. you tend to be quite focused and sharp for, mm. for that window. Mm. I think an example of that is that in the days when, when almost every match we would do, there would be two commentators and we would do it in the style where first 22 and a half minutes I would do, then I would hand across to Mike Kingham, Alan Green, whoever it happened to be, and then second half exactly the same thing. And I think that, that what makes you realise that that is the case is that I felt that I would learn much more sitting there when I'm in a work mode, when I'm thinking as a commentator, and I'm thinking that I'm going to be on again here in 20, 20 odd minutes, I'm, I'm going to be commentating again. and um, I felt that that was like our own sort of academy of football commentary and that it was totally different to if I was sitting at home or in the car listening to the commentary, I'd be listening more as a listener, whereas, whereas sitting there in the ground with another commentator, you are what listening, you're seeing the same thing and it's um, something I've found incredibly useful and invaluable in my development as a commentator and you know I'm, I'm I am, I'll always be indebted to the years that I worked and sat alongside specifically Mike Ingham and Alan Green doing commentaries, but also all of the other commentators as well, because 
you do learn from your colleagues. Can I ask you to expand on that a little bit more? Because uh, for a lot of people that would watch football on TV, the idea of splitting a commentary out, mm. I mean, you quite literally hand over, don't you? Yeah. You would say, okay, yeah. and now over for the rest of the half, you'll yeah. be with That's right. whoever yeah. it is. Which we do occasionally still do. For England matches, we do it, big cup finals and such like. I'll tell you, it was always such a matter. When, when that really came into its own was when the, it was a terrible game. And, and then you were only commentating on, you know, you knew that you were going to be able to hand over to the other commentator. Um, but I used to like it not only from, not only in a professional sense, I like it as, as a listener as well, because you get, you get different voices, you get a different viewpoint as well, and a different take on the game. So the summariser will remain the same, but the commentators would change, and and just basically, I felt it was a, it it was and indeed it, it is a a better listen in my opinion. That's really interesting. I, and uh, when you said that you um, would remain focused and listen to to the other commentator, are you still, as you said, in the same mindset, or are you can you relax a little bit and be like, right, I'm gonna I'm just gonna listen now? Mm, not really, because you're still. You're still in that, you're still in that mode there. You, so you, you you are in full work professional mode as you sit there in in the in the commentary box next to the to the team. You know it is it is very different. Yeah. So what I wanted to ask next is one thing that I've found is that I will have an enormous come down off the back of a game or off the back of doing something live, say. For a couple of hours, or you'll often be on for what four hours, mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. Do you then find you sort of finish, and then suddenly it all just comes rushing away, and you're like, whoa, mm. like that was that was a, a prolonged period of, of concentration, and suddenly mm -hmm. you can relax a little bit, not not massively so. Do you think that's because you have done so many? Can you remember your Probably. early ones? Yeah, 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 very much so. Um, and and I mean, listen. It, I never get to, um, you know. I know. I I feel like I know where where we sit here, in in the in the in the whole landscape of football. You know what we do is is really on in that landscape. You know, very much on the fringes. You know, we are we play a, a fringe role in the whole footballing world. But at the same time, for us, you know, this is this is our this is our world. This is our world. This is what we do. You know, I'm I'm a professional broadcaster, so f for me, you want to do you want to do this job, and I want to perform this role to the best of my ability. But at the same time, it is what it is. You know, certainly what what we do is, is in the main as a radio commentator is. Um, you know, it's not life or death, and you know we get relatively well paid for what we do. It's good fun. It's a it's a brilliant challenge, and it takes us to amazing places, and we witness incredible things. Not just in the football, the other things that I do as well, whether it's whether it's the cricket, as I mentioned. You know, do still do lots of golf, Olympics, all that sort of thing. You know some incredible experiences, and I work with in the main really nice people. They're good fun to work with. Um, so, you know, I try not to take it all too seriously. But at the same time, it's my profession. It's what I do. And when I say that it's a constant challenge, it's a great challenge because it's unscripted. The whole thing. You know, it's like what we're doing now. Everything you do, you cannot do perfectly. So therefore. I do a game last night, I'll do a game at the weekend, and you know, I know that what I do at the weekend I can do better than I did last night. Do you not get nervous then at all? Not really. I get excited about it, um, but I don't get nervous. I mean, I absolutely hate public speaking, and that's see, when I. That's most when people would find that bizarre to yeah, think but that you wouldn't do, enjoy public speaking. Yeah, but you see, in, as we broadcast, we're sitting behind the mic, you can't see the people you're looking at. Now, if I stand up to speak publicly, then I get nervous. <laughs> then I get really nervous. 
And I never, ever, ever feel like that behind a microphone. Never. Never have done, I don't think. Maybe, maybe. I get excited when it's a big event, when it's a big event, when it's a big match. When there's a big moment coming, I get excited, but excited in a good way. Standing up in front of people, I feel nervous in a bad way. You just remind, do you ever stand up at big moments? Um, when you're not commentating, really. you, no, you I always don't. remain. Yeah. It, it's come across to me whenever I've seen you look, you look very calm and very composed and like everything's in sort of full working order. Like you, you know everything that's sort of happening, you know, very in control of the environment. Um, but yeah, in those huge moments, mm. do you try and do you feel the responsibility? I think I was talking to Martin Tyler who said that he never felt it was, it was his responsibility to over-egg the moment, that yeah. it, it was his responsibility to make it clear what the moment was. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's all you want to do, is to find the right words, which, and you know, I've done it now long enough to know that you've sort of get a, you, you pretty much know when, when a big moment or a big event or a big happening is, is going to take place and I've done it I've done I've tried I've done it in all different ways so so I've done it where I think right this might happen I'm going to really prepare for this I'm going to prepare I'm going to I'm going to and maybe I might script a script a couple of lines so that when it happens I've got it there and I'm going to be able to deliver that and I'm going to be able to get it absolutely right I've done it that way and then cocked it up <laughs> and then thought I was perfectly prepared for that and I've made a right mess of it. Does that annoy you? Oh, massively, massively, yeah. But you see, I've done it the other way as well, where big things have happened, as it does in commentary, big things have happened and big events have happened and completely surprised you, and yet you feel, whew, I've actually, I've, I've done that pretty well. But I've also done it the other way around, where things surprise you and you cock it up, and I've also done it where, uh, you know, for whatever reason, I've thought, ooh, that might happen, that might be a big event. But for whatever reason, I haven't done all that planning for it. Then it happens, and you do a good job of it. It's just, there is no rhyme or reason to how it works. And again, that's part of, that's part of the attraction to me of doing what I do, because it's so elusive, that thing of, of getting it right and the whole thing for me gives me such a, a buzz and always has done you know I get ex I get so excited and motivated for what I do and I still feel that um, and I think the reason for that is th that whole thing about will I do it well will I will I do it well or will I not do it well and and that that never changes so that's amazing that you you're still that you still have that level of excitement considering that in an average week how many games will you commentate on generally two or three and yet you still get for the obviously yeah. not every single game you can't be at fever pitch but like like for the big games you're still you still feel the same level of excitement yeah i do yeah yeah i um there's always something there's always something to attract you to, to any match that you do. And um, I, I love it when the FA Cup comes round because, you know, it's a long season as we've discussed, you know, it never ends. But there's always something, there's always something somewhere during the season that refreshes you as well. Even if you are feeling a little bit stale and, you know, you've had weekend after weekend of getting home in the middle of the night or whatever. and. But there's always something, and I love it when the FA Cup comes around. That that generally takes you to places, and you meet different people, and you see people who are who are really excited. You know, whether or whatever it happens to be, whether it's Lincoln City or whether it's some non-league club in the back of beyond, who are really excited that you're that you're there, and that we're we're you know broadcasting this game around the country. And and very often as well, those games do provide the upsets, and I can't, you know I love that because that um, it's, it's a sort of reinvigorating process to see football like that when you see, you know, whichever big club it is that rolls in with all of their Premier League money. And even now in this day and age with the massive squads and the, you know, the world names that you have, still, and it feels like almost more often now, 
those big teams get knocked out of the cups by the teams and, you, and they have that great moment and and some individual will step forward and write their name into the history of the FA Cup so 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 you know that that's um, it, it you know that's that's a big part of what we do as well sort of reignites that spark yeah, it does, doesn't it it's, yeah. it's very re I often think it's very reassuring going to watch FA Cup games because you more often than not will come across um, a sense of community that you don't yeah. necessarily get with the bigger clubs. Yeah, yeah. I particularly found that you, when you go and you're doing Premier League game week and week out, you can almost feel like a bit of a, can almost feel f quite formulaic mm -hmm. sometimes, for f yeah. particularly for fans yeah. who are repeating the same thing yeah. week in, week out. And they're also being forced, not forced, but they're, they're being asked to go to more games than yeah. ever before. Yeah, yeah. And so when you get something that breaks with the, the mould a bit and yeah. you suddenly get a team who you've never really come across or only ever covered once or twice, yeah. suddenly you just you come alive again. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really nice, really, really nice feeling. And, and that worrying trend as well now that we have in that you know, it's sort of changed a little bit because the, the, even in the Premier League, the top clubs are so powerful. Very often now I'll, I'll, I'll be sitting watching a game where Manchester City are winning 4-0 or whatever it is against Brighton. And you, you think I've seen that? I feel like I've seen this game before. Yeah. yeah. So you do need a little bit of. See, that's why I like international football as well. Is is also performs a different role because, and I think it's very much got its place, and it's always been really dear to, to me from growing up watching international football. You know, in the tournaments, whether it's the Euros or whether it's the World Cup, you know, that is the pinnacle of what I do. You know, that that is the absolute top of the tree. That's that. That I, I, I um, you know, that means of all of the things I do, though that's what I professionally really live for are those tournaments. And I like international football all the more now, and let's hope it stays this way, in that you cannot just buy your team. You can't you cannot spend gazillions. You have to, in international football, more or less work with what you've got and and therefore I think that means it has real value in the in the modern footballing world. If they're the the pinnacle, the tournaments are the pinnacle, can you give us some of your greatest hits? What are like when you think back like over however long, mm. what are the memories that stand out to you in terms of the games you've commentated on or when you've felt when you've looked back and felt oh, I had a good one? That was a that was a good game. Um, it's funny because when you say that, you know, certain games come to mind. But um, to me, in terms of fond memories, they're more about the experience of of. Um, that, that whole tournament, the, the tournament thing, for me, is is just, you know, when I was growing up, my imagination was really sparked by watching World Cups, whether it's Argentina 78, for me, was the, the I have vague memories of 74, but 78 was that, that one. I think most football followers will will that will resonate with most football fans that there will be our first World Cup where they thought this is it you know this is this is my first World Cup Argentina 78 was it for me and then you know I remember I remember um, 82 you know racing home from school and and getting in and, and plonking myself on the city as Brian Robson scored after what it was at 27 seconds and I mean incredible incredible memories and and because of that in answer to the question you know I feel like that that bond with the World Cup and then and then being in a position whereby I could I would go and actually comment and try try and try and bring across what it means to be at the World Cup and, and, and it's the same as well with European football. I, you know, going, going away to cover European matches goes back once again to when I was growing up and listening to, and I know this is not an original thought, many have said this over the years, but listening to those commentators of years ago, whether it's you know, Mike and Alan, whether it's Brian Butler, Peter Jones, yeah, Alan Parry, Ian Dark, li listening to them describing what it's like 
to go and cover Dukla Prague away. You know, when you've got, what is it like? What is it like to be there and watching the, the team play in this place? That's, that is one of the things that, that was the driver for me doing what I do. And, and that's, that's what I try to do to a greater or lesser degree of success in the, in the job that I do now. So, so you were saying that the World Cups are, are all about the experience, because yeah. I mean, it's like you're only 90 minutes at a time, right? Yeah. So there's so much other time to fill. Yeah. I assume that's a, a very big part of whether you come away thinking, that was a really great tournament, or yeah. that perhaps wasn't as yeah. good as other tournaments. Yeah. But again, you know, you talk about the, the sort of great memories that I have. Of if, if I come away from a, a match like that, a World Cup match, whatever it is, you want to feel that you have done it justice. You want to feel that the match that you've done, you've got, you've got the, the big moments right, but also everything else surrounding the match. You want, to, you want to get that right. You want to work well with the summariser that you have. And you see, that when you talk about my style, I feel that's a, that's a big part of my style, is working with a summariser. And, um, you know, we've, we've had some gr great names. I mean, I could, you could, I could, over the years, I mean, you could put together a, gr a great team of, of, of players, former players that, that I've, I've worked with. And it's lovely when you, you, you click with a, with a summariser. So you want that to work well. And then you want everything else as well. You want your description to be right. You want to be able to find the right words. Um, and, and you want to take the listener to wherever it is you are watching this game. So um, when you say the, the, the memory, when did a, I would say that, and I can't name them off the top of the head, those times when you walk away from the game and you think, yeah, I've got fairly close to doing what, what I set out to do. That's, that's, what, that's what pleases me most, rather than describing Thierry Henry score a goal, you know, in a specific moment. So is it aligning your execution against your intentions and, yeah. and, and actually coming away feeling quite fulfilled with the, the overall, yeah, yeah. The overall the package? Yeah. package yeah. yeah, because I feel, you know, we, we do have a responsibility to entertain as well. You know, I wonder, when I'm listening, I try, I try to do it in a way that I would like to listen to it. Um, and, and it's funny how often you do walk away from a match and you'll, you'll think, that it didn't quite, it didn't quite work. I remember another colleague, dear colleague of ours, Ron Jones, always used to say to me, we cover all these matches during a season. He said, if you cover, say, 100 matches, he said, you'll cover, you'll cover 80 of them, 80 of them will be fine. 80 will be fine. You'll have got some things right, you'll have got some things wrong, but generally, it's okay. 10 of them, you'll think, I've done a pretty good job there. You know, that's, that's you know, I've got I've got fairly close, but another ten as well. You'll think I haven't I haven't cut it there. You know I've just not for whatever reason it's not. And from that point of view, it's actually very similar to playing the game. You know that's that's pretty much how it would be. You know over the course of a season as a player as well. I think so. Um, so that that is how it is. So there's one part of your role that we haven't covered yet, and that is the fact that you often will have to either go to press conferences interview managers players um i assume you've done a million mix zones in your time mm -hmm. and and um how have you found those relationships we've had other people say that, that it's it's an interesting balance that you have to strike between making sure that you're on good terms with the people that you're going to come across a lot mm -hmm. but also having to maintain editorial integrity and, mm -hmm. and ensure that you're in a position to do your job well mm -hmm. so how have you found that and has there been anyone that you've been nervous mm -hmm. about coming across mm -hmm. I would say that certainly Sir Alex Ferguson is the name that jumps out when you when you say that, just because he was just quite an intimidating character to to interview, largely I think because of the reputation that he had with with the media and how he could be liked. But he did was, you get on with him? Um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I got on with him. I wouldn't say I didn't get on with him. I mean, I just had a, a working relationship. I wouldn't see the thing is <laughs> doing what we do. You're not covering our team all the time. Yeah. So you're dipping in and out, and that's still how it is. So you'll have a passing relationship with all of these top managers. 
Some I will interview many times over the course of a year. Um, some I won't interview so much. So, I mean, Alex Ferguson was someone who I would interview occasionally over the years, a bit, a bit like m most of the, the managers and players. And now I find what's interesting is I've almost had a closer working relationship with the England managers because, um, bef I mean, I've, I've covered England, you know, every game since um, uh, 2014 when Mike, when Mike Ingham retired. So since then, I've done England pretty much every game, I think, in that time. So previous to that, I would quite often stand in and do England games if either Mike or Alan w w weren't doing them. And therefore, I would have, uh, you know, I've interviewed England managers, I think going back Kevin Keegan, but, but only in the last four years with Roy Hodgson and, and Gareth Southgate. Have I actually had that scenario whereby I'll be sitting down on a regular basis and interviewing a manager? Um, so that, that, if you talk about the, the manager uh, broadcaster relationship, that's the, the, the best basis that I have to talk about that. And do you feel, something that I've found is that you can usually tell with a manager whether there's, like, whether they have like a, a natural warmth. Yeah. perhaps or feel a little bit yeah. more comfortable yeah. and some that are a little bit more reserved than you think within the first mm. 30 seconds to a minute of an interview like this this mm. might be hard work today mm. um sorry go on i think go it's on. a i think it's a tricky relationship because certainly as the broadcaster as the commentator you're having to build a relationship with someone and it's entirely possible that in the match that follows or the match that's preceded it you've had to be quite critical of their methods and the way that they work and then then you have to go and interview them so therefore I, f I find the the personal relationship thing there is quite tricky sure. because there is a danger of being quite two-faced there isn't there without In the, ever intending to be without ever intending to be but you have to you have to try and have a friendly relationship and a working relationship with that person and that's where it becomes a little problematic when the team isn't doing very well. Does that get... So, someone like Roy Hodgson, for example, yeah. I mean, that must have been really difficult because, on all accounts, he seems like yeah. a very likeable yeah. guy and, and carries himself or has carried himself very well for a number of years. Yeah. At times, the, the football that England were playing under Roy Hodgson was very difficult to like. Yeah. And then you are faced with the idea, I'm going to have to go and do, have a 10 minute sit yeah. down, just you and him. But I mean, Roy was great to, to, to deal with as the England manager. And, and really, if you remember, things only really fell, totally fell apart yes. with the yeah. Iceland game. And that was the end of it. But as, as, as I said at the time, there were an awful lot of things that Roy Hodgson did as the England manager in terms of bringing through young players that actually, I think, had great benefits to Gareth Southgate's time as the England manager. If you look at the young players that, that Roy Hodgson brought through, you know, that, that really was the start of, of what Gareth Southgate then took on. And, and generally, you know, Roy Hodgson was and is, you know, a very fair man. And I think if you, ask, if you ask him a fair question, he'll give you a fair answer. I've listened to a lot of your... Uh, you often will get time with Gareth Southgate yeah. with England camps. Um, but he seems to be perhaps... He seems very open in general, but he seems very open with you. He's he's a dream, he's a dream manager to deal with, and the, the proviso I'd add to that is that things have gone pretty well. Well, he's had a good him. run, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, things have gone pretty well during the time that he'll be England manager. But he, when I think back to, I don't know, I've spoken to Mike about this. You know, Mike's later years, he had obviously Sven Joran Eriksson as the England manager and then he had Fabio Capello now as an interviewee as God. interviewees you know that they were they were quite they were quite hard work and Fabio I Capello was a close I book wasn't I he? interviewed Capello quite a few times over the years and you know very often with with Fabio Capello I'm not sure that what he did with the media was particularly high on his list of priorities and you'd finish an interview with with Fabio Capello and you'd think what, what what did he actually say there? <laughs> I'm, not sure what he, I'm not sure what he said. But with, I mean, with Gareth Southgate, I mean, he, he, he's, uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I've seen him wrong-footed by, by anything, really. And some difficult topics. Difficult come topics. Up difficult topics. We, and it helps. It helps when the team's doing well. It helps when the team's doing well. And, you know, from his point of view, long may that continue.
and and he also is someone that isn't he doesn't seem to be afraid to kind of he, he never feels outspoken but he doesn't seem to be afraid of being honest no is that something that you felt when when you're in oh, yeah, conversation yeah. with yes. him do you feel like he'll he always offer something and you know I see him speak a lot whether it's whether it's in our interviews or whether it's in the TV press conference uh, and then obviously he'll go away and speak to the writers as well and yet he'll come in and he'll talk to us and very often you'll think well I've not heard you say that before it's not like same he's trotting thing. out the, the same thing and, the and again listen I know where it sits the talking is down the list of priorities it's the it's the what happens on the pitch that counts but I think the way that he's talked has has helped in the the development of how he's thought of and how his England team are thought of I think that's that's interesting you say that because I think that almost does you a little bit of a disservice because there's so much time with England mm -hmm. around in between the games that often for example if an interview that you do with, with him will carry weight for 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 two weeks for example with with the Premier League you could do an interview post-match mm. or you could do a press conference post-match and by the next day there's another game mm. it, it, like there's so many examples yeah. I could go through but yeah. with the Premier League there's there's four match days now almost it feels like every yeah. single weekend yeah. I mean it is very here today gone tomorrow yeah, isn't it yeah. I mean that's the that's the football media world in which we live isn't it in that you know very often such store is set in who said what about who yeah and <laughs> And really, it's what happens on. Sometimes I feel that the the balance actually isn't quite. Right. You know, it's what happens on the field that that is the most important thing here. You know, that's what it's all about. So, um, just finally, you you cover an extremely large amount of games. So let's just say you mentioned it, m maybe a hundred in a season. You must have an unbelievably supportive family behind you, and your friends must absolutely sort of be. They must have the patience of saints. But I think when you go into the, this business, and this is something I often say to to students uh, who I talk to on a fairly regular basis, that if you're going to work in sports broadcasting, sports journalism, you know there is a there is a a price to pay there and the, and the price that you pay is that most of the people you know most of your most of your friends and your family you know tend to work nine to five Monday to Friday and you don't you will work weekends and therefore it is a very very unusual and different way of life and I think that's why you tend to then speaking personally you then tend to gravitate and socialize with people who do the same job and that's why certainly with my friends I really value I value I value the friends that I have who aren't interested in football or sport and I have quite a few of them and I find that quite relaxing so if yeah. I spend time with them they're not going to be asking you about you know but you know what's the problem with Tottenham whatever yeah, it happens yeah, to be yeah. you know that and that so that's good I like that uh, my daughter, I've got a 14-year-old daughter who likes playing sport, but she's not into football. That's great. So that means spending time with her, nothing to do with football. So, so that, that's good. That's, that's a good part of, of, um, of, of my life away from the job. Um, but also in a professional sense, what I like to do as well as the football, what I find helps to refresh me is when I do golf when I do other things, whether it's BBC things or whatever it happens to be, whether it's, you know, if I go and speak to, to students, I personally, am someone, I, I need something else. I cannot do football all the time because I, I find I do get stale quite quickly with it. I need to be freshened up, whether it's, whether it's on a social sense or whether it's in a broadcasting sense. And I find it's helpful if I go off and do golf and it's so completely different or I go and do Olympics, Olympics, you know, sp Olympic sports and, and I mean, I've done like uh, royal events, royal events like the Royal Wedding, the Jubilee, did that totally different challenge. And I find that really invigorates me again and, and makes you think slightly different about broadcasting and, and w w what it is that you're trying to do when you've got a microphone in your hand. Do you still set yourself 
targets like long term do you still think no. oh, I'd, I'd love to do that or do you just kind of listen I'd love doing what I do what, what I do I mean it's an absolute dream to, to do you know most of the big football matches if not all the big football matches right Ryder Cup Olympics Masters Open the Open Golf Championship absolutely love doing it uh, and you know that's the you know I, I, I enjoy what I do so much that Really, you know, I, I can't think of I can't think of many other things I would I would rather do than what I do. That's so refreshing. That that's so that I can imagine for most people that must be really really nice to hear because, like you said before, that my friends their their jobs are very much nine to five, nine to six. Mm. Probably work quite long hours, yeah. but. I think a lot of them would be, if I complained about a day of work, yeah. they would be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and the same for you with your sort of family background mm. in, in, in terms of working on a farm and like doing qu quite heavy stuff every single day. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's incredibly refreshing to know that you're sort of at the pinnacle of what you do mm. and you, you still love it across mm. the board. Mm. Um, I think particularly now, I think particularly at the moment, just with the the wider kind of what's going on in the wider world, people are often looking for that thing that keeps mm. them ticking over. Yeah. So um, football is usually yeah. one of those things, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I think that when I when I do go and talk to students, I I, I um, feel quite excited for them because I because I th I think if you can get an opportunity to do and, and they're in such a you know those sort of sports media students are in a position there whereby the world's their oyster you know it's entirely possible that they could go on and, and and do what i do and i always think to them you know it's such an exciting time because you could go and have a fan, you know such an exciting professional life you know if if you do things the right way i just want to finish up by asking you about the bbc because you've been you have obviously been there for a long time so you must feel um a sense of loyalty, but um, you mentioned earlier on that it w that it was like a, a carrot to you that, mm. that working for the BBC carried some gravitas. Um, do you still feel the same? Mm -hmm. What has kept you there for so long? And do you feel uh, a kind of a pride in the BBC? Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 so only when I go away. I mean, I, I make no secret of the fact that I, I'm enormously proud that we have the BBC in this country. But it's only when you go away and you speak to people in other countries mm. and they make you aware of how lucky you are to have it, mm. do you think, wow, this isn't the case everywhere. Mm. So for you on a personal level, do you still feel that pride in mm -hmm. it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that aren't right about the BBC and that's been the case, you know, probably from the moment that Lord Reith thought, Ooh, that would be a good idea. So, you know, you, you have to, to bear that in mind. And there are a lot of things that, that frustrate us about it. But I think it is true to say that if it wasn't there, I think the, that, you know, British society would, would be a, a poorer place to, to not have it. And I do feel a loyalty to it. And it has been for me a, a you know, a great organization corporation to work for and you know it, it carries those that logo that the the BBC does does carry a cachet for me and whether that is still the case to what extent that remains the case because bashing the BBC has become a national sport in itself hasn't yeah. it over the over the years and um, so it's it's very difficult to quantify. I mean, probably the BBC, BBC spends far too much money trying to work that out for itself with members of the public exactly what they're thought of. Um, but but in the main, it gets most things right, and and um, you know has a has has a rightful place in uh, in the society in which we live. Do you remove yourself then when people are sort of sort of bashing the BBC? I often think they're bashing the idea of the BBC as opposed to actually the the content itself. You know, they're bashing the kind of sort of almost hitting the umbrella mm. as opposed to perhaps you personally, for example, as someone that 
takes the job very seriously and, and uh, is very passionate about, about mm. the job. I mean, very often those criticisms, you'll sit there and think, do you know what? Actually, a large part of that, they're absolutely right. And, and very often I, I think, I wish the BBC would be a, a little bit stronger. You know, sometimes the BBC can be very strong from, from the top down within the organisation and not strong enough outside, you know, to stand up for itself mm. and, and to, to be stronger against the criticism that it gets. Um, but, um, yeah, as we, as we find out, you know, the, the BBC, an organisation the size of the BBC, in common with many similar um, institutions and organisations, you know, when, when it becomes that big, it's actually quite difficult to control and, and that's just a fact of life. Yeah, and it's, it, as you say, I think with a lot of large organisations, the moment that you reach a certain size, you go from being the underdog to the person in yeah. the crosshairs and you're automatically just yeah. there to be criticised. Yeah. And listen, you know, the BBC now faces challenges that it's never faced before. Yet, you know, I've worked within the BBC for long enough to have heard that many times before. You know, this is now the biggest challenge. And, and I just hope that it will always have its place in, um, you know, somewhere in the broadcasting landscape. Very finally, I just want—I just wanted to ask you about the the idea of of radio. You you must have a real passion for for radio, mm -hmm. and at a time where there is so much that everything seems to be videoed, um, and I know that you do more video content now for for social media probably than than you've ever done before as well. Can you mm. just tell us what it what is that is so special about radio? To yeah. You? Well, first of all, from that point of view, I do and always have done really value my anonymity. Um, you know, it, it's not something, being a sort of celebrity is not, not something that's ever particularly attracted, um, attracted me. So radio works from that point of view because, you know, the fact is, you know, I've, I've broadcast to millions and millions and millions of people over the years, yet not, not very many, many people will actually know what I look like. So I can go and do my thing and not get bothered at all, and that is great. And I know that increasingly from working with people who are in the, the spotlight, who get that all the time and absolutely hate it. So I, do, I really value that, that anonymity. Um, and what was the other question? Well, just, just the, the, the radio, it's sort of what, what yeah. it, what, why you love it. Yeah. I just get it. It, it, it works for me. You know, and again, radio now has to really fight for its place in the marketplace with, uh, with all of the various um, types of media that there, that there is. But there is something about the radio that I, I think holds and will always hold its place because of the immediacy of it and the intimacy of it. It's, it's, unlike, it's unlike anything else. And I, you know, I hold it incredibly dear, whether it's, whether it's the music radio that I listen to, whether it's the speech radio I listen to, what, whatever it happens to be. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a committed radio listener and I love working on the radio as well. I think it suits me. I've done TV. I enjoy doing TV. I think I've got a label as a football commentator as being a football commentator who works much better on the radio than, than I do on the TV. Maybe because I've not really done enough TV, but it 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 works for me. Radio works for me, and uh, you know I think I I think to a greater or lesser extent I work for it. I want to just share with you one one final thing. So it, it's really interesting that you say that because um, when Spurs beat Ajax um, and they come from behind and, and and get the result, like most Spurs fans, I then went out and consumed. Um, every single last bit of that game that I could. So I watched all the highlights. I watched the various different angles of it. The thing that I enjoyed the most was your commentary with Chris Sutton, Sutton. I believe. And it is so... That just really rang true for me there, what you said, because it allowed you to remember it how you remembered it mm -hmm. or see it how you saw it so mm. just a, a, a still image of uh, on on the screen so you're not watching any video but i'm just hearing your words and hearing the way that you're describing mm. it mm. i was able to get way more into mm. 
what was in the stadium, mm, like what was going on in that place, in that environment, as opposed to being presented with a flat image and just accepting what I was seeing. Mm. Like there was a lot more colour. You know, a lot, there was a lot going on that night, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Within the stadium, and that's why you know, increasingly in um, in football commentary and sports commentary, there is a tendency to move because it's cheaper towards commentary as we say off tube yeah. effectively you've got commentators sitting in a studio watching and doing it off the television which the BBC does to to an extent but there is no substitute for, for being cer certainly in a radio sense because obviously with radio you're not tied to the pictures and you can take a broader view and you can bring the whole experience across and that Ajax game Tottenham Ajax was a was a great example of of that because of what was going on in the stadium and around us and you know beer being thrown on our heads and all that sort of thing <laughs> and uh, and also the story that we had there I mean talk about a sporting story to tell the way that that game developed the way that it was it was and looked all over and yet turned around and also you get a winning goal right at the end you know, that that's the sort of that's the sort of match that you that you dream of being sent to cover because of the way that it works out well thank you for your commentary on that it was it cemented a place very much in in my mind and my heart with uh, with my club but um but yeah thank you again for sitting down with us thank you so much for your time and Pleasure. thanks for sharing so much it was absolutely fascinating no thank you thank you ben